six months ago, the government learned that Isaac became a Christian. Where Isaac lives, following Jesus is forbidden. His family lost everything, fearing threats from authorities, businesses refused to hire him. Nearly all have disowned them and left them on the streets. They're doing what they can to survive, but seeing his wife and children suffer is nearly unbearable. If the pain gets any worse, he wonders how staying faithful to Jesus is possible. For years, Faith dreamed of getting married and raising a family. That marriage happened, and children came too. But her husband's sin turned the dream into a nightmare. Others swooped in to help her piece together what the wrecking ball of unfaithfulness left behind. But even as the pieces come together, distrust leads to fear, and the lingering hurt makes her question how forgiveness and love are even possible. Not knowing what to expect, she wonders how staying faithful to Jesus is possible. And then there's Diego. Diego became a Christian 20 years ago. Monday nights, he leads a Bible study. Sometimes he's asked to lead worship on Sundays. He's involved in a local ministry to the poor. Anyone who meets Diego wouldn't question his commitment to Jesus But Diego wrestles with assurance. The daily battle against his own sin discourages him. He has doubts. He wonders, why is my sanctification taking so long? If the gospel is so powerful, why am I still not whole? If I feel like a miserable worm every morning... If I'm this vulnerable to temptation, is staying faithful to Jesus possible? Hannah loves Jesus too. She loves using her gifts to serve others. And for years, the church has enjoyed her generous acts of charity. But after months of testing, the doctors still don't know why Hannah's body keeps shutting down. Often she wants to serve, but her body doesn't have the stamina. She hears the preacher say, adopt the orphan and serve the poor and show hospitality and everything in her wants to. But just getting the kids off to school leaves her exhausted. She wonders, if my strength is fading so quickly, how in coming days will staying faithful to Jesus be possible? And then there's Marcus. Soon he will marry Lauren, and he'll also adopt her little boy, Cade. But he's terrified. He knows how Scripture calls him to love Lauren and Cade, but he never saw it modeled. All he remembers is hiding in the closet while his father shouted at his mother and threw dishes across the kitchen. Never once could he recall his daddy tucking him in or telling him, I love you. 
Will I become the same, he wonders? People often say, like father, like son, what if I mess everything up? How do I care well for them? Is staying faithful to Jesus possible for me? Perhaps you're living a story like these. Or maybe you know someone who is. Perhaps your story is different, but circumstances leave you with the same lingering question. In a world with persecution and deception and suffering and knowing the weakness of your own flesh, how is staying faithful to Jesus possible? Well, Hebrews answers that question with a closing benediction, a prayer, a hope for the people. New Testament letters share a lot in common with the letters of the Greco-Roman world, the first century. But several features make New Testament letters really stand out, really unique. The apostles often change the customary greeting. Instead of the usual greetings, they change it to grace and peace be to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Even their greetings they set within the framework of God's saving plan. Also, instead of instructing an individual, their letters focus more on the community as a whole. But another way they stood out was this. Utter confidence that God's power would actively achieve in the people everything they had just written about. Utter confidence that God's power would actively achieve in the people everything they had just written about. Verses 20 and 21 exist for that purpose. They express great confidence that all you need to stay faithful to Jesus, God is going to work it in you. In union with Christ, staying faithful to Jesus isn't just possible. It is secure. Let's read it in Together, starting in verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can we read that together? Join me in reading it with me. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As we approach verses 20 to 21, we could say they they answer four important questions. And the first is this, who is our God? Who is our God? Verse 20 calls him the God of peace. And what's meant is that he's the source of peace. He is the God who gives peace. 
Now, if you read Hebrews looking only for the word peace, you're only going to find it in three uh, places. In chapter 7, verse 2, Melchizedek, pointing to Christ, is called the king of peace. Uh, In chapter 12, verse 11, God disciplines us to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then in chapter 12, verse 14, uh, it says that we must strive for peace with everyone. But if you also look for uh, the, the various concepts that are normally associated with peace throughout the Bible, well, Hebrews provides an even richer picture. People usually have a truncated view of peace. Often they reduce peace to the mere absence of conflict. But in Scripture, peace has more to do with the presence of God blessing the world with his perfect rule. Okay, True peace exists only when we stand in a right relationship with our maker, and then he then orders our relationships with one another according to his design and will. So for Hebrews... This is where God has taken the entire world, is to this kingdom, to this day of of peace. For every enemy of peace, God is in the process of putting them underneath the feet of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 13. In chapter 2, verses 5, 8, and 9, we don't yet see everything rightly ordered in the world, it says. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And he is ruling the world to come already. Jesus has also delivered many from Satan's power. And he is leading many children to glory. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 14. And that glory consists of entering God's rest, which we saw in chapter 4. No enemies, no sickness or death. Creation bountiful, everything rightly ordered, everybody made whole, all in the presence of God. Hebrews 11 calls it the better country. Hebrews 12 calls it the unshakable kingdom. And it also calls it the heavenly Yerushalayim, the city of peace. This is the peace God intends to give those who follow Jesus. This is the peace that he seeks to work into us, even now. And this is the peace that he expects the church to reflect in our relations to one another. We are to be an outpost where, where others look in and see, wow, this is the peace of the kingdom that is to come. This is the peace of the kingdom that Jesus is ruling right now. You see the news headlines. Boko Haram kidnaps 276 schoolgirls. Military coup in Myanmar. Are U.S. police too militarized? Civil war continues in Yemen. Protesters storm U.S. Capitol. There is a lack of peace in the world. We even experience this lack of of peace in our own homes when marriage is hard and, and the kids are fighting and, and, and you're keeping down all kinds of frustrations, right? After a hard day. People know this this lack of peace. 
outside, and they know it within. People also long for peace, only the peace they have in mind isn't always the same. You've seen the signs. No justice, no peace. And we're left wondering, who's justice? One shirt I saw had peacemaker across the front, but in the background flew the rainbow LGBT flag. Another shirt said, give peace a chance. Be armed, just in case. A big AR-15 across, across the breast. Peace, love, tacos. Makes a great t-shirt, but I doubt anything tastes that good. People want peace, but the peace they envision isn't God's. The peace they envision isn't everything rightly ordered before God's presence. And so the war goes on. True and lasting peace cannot be found in the world or in ourselves. True peace must come from outside. The Bible's answer is that it comes from God. The one who created the world. The one who designed every relationship to work a certain way. Here's the message of scripture. Though we don't deserve it, God has reached down to bring us peace. In the midst of our chaos and wars and strife, God reached down to bring us peace with him and peace with one another. And central to his peace plan was God saving us through Jesus Christ, which we'll consider more closely in in a moment. But before going there, consider what this means. You will not find peace until you know the God of peace. Strive all you want. Do all the, the works you want. Form as many campaigns as you'd like. You will not find true peace apart from a relationship with the God of peace. And that's important for us to remember. Some people, you know, they want peace in their homes. And they want peace in their marriages. But they don't spend much time with the God of peace. Sitting with him, communing with him in prayer. Learning from his word. If there's rarely any communion with the true source of peace, your heart will not be filled with peaceful attitudes. I mean, the scriptures tell us that the fruit of peace in your life, it's a a gift of the Holy Spirit. You must come to God if you want true and lasting peace. If your soul is in turmoil this morning, bring your burdens to the God who gives peace. Knowing that, the, that God is the God of peace also gives us hope as a church, doesn't it? Chapter 12, verse 14 said, strive for peace with everyone. Now, how's that going to happen? I mean, sometimes we may not want to like each other very much. I mean, humans are irritating. 
including me. How will a community of sinners, yes, saved by grace, but still maturing, how can we relate to one another peacefully? Well, God is the God of peace. That's who our God is. Through Jesus, we are united to the source. We have communion with this God by the Spirit. So that means we have a lot of hope for our relationships, don't we? You might be in a situation right now where you don't feel a lot of hope. But you have a lot of hope when you turn to the God of peace. If God can make a new creation, he can establish and preserve peace in his church. So turn to him, depend on him, ask him his help and learn his ways. Knowing that God is the God of peace also helps us speak to the world, doesn't it? You see, the world's attempts at achieving peace apart from God, they're not going to last. They can paint a football field with words like end racism. They can attempt peace talks in the Middle East. Public servants can set goals for more peaceful neighborhoods down South Las Vegas Trail. But if there's no desire to relate to the God of peace, if part of that vision is not rightly ordering ourselves beneath the Maker's rule, it's not going to last. Now, I want to be clear here. Wherever God's common grace leads people, even unbelievers, to pursue true good for society, we as Christians should be the loudest supporters of those efforts. But in our support, we must continue to extend to these same people the special grace of God in Christ. If any group wants to experience real and lasting peace, they must first know the God of peace. So let's point people to him. Now here's the second question. What did God achieve through Jesus? What did God achieve through Jesus? What did he achieve to ensure that this kingdom of peace is going to be established? How do we experience this this peace? Let's look at verse 20 again. He says, Now may the God of peace who, this is what he did, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Nowhere in history has any person entered death and then taken up their life bodily, never to die again. I mean, repeatedly, the grave proves its power over us. We can't escape death on our own. Death holds people in the grave because people have this massive problem called sin. Death is in our bones because we rebel against God. Nobody can beat it. But there was one man who did, Jesus Christ. God raised him never to die again. And this makes him and him alone the great shepherd of the sheep. He's not just a shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Okay, and by sheep, he means you people and me. Right? All his people throughout the ages. All the ones that he's, he's shepherding and leading to glory. Now, in the Old Testament, God appointed uh, certain shepherds to, his, uh, to lead his people. Right? I mean, two of the biggest figures in the Old Testament are Moses uh, and who, who's leading the people through the wilderness like a shepherd, 
and, and David, right, the king. David, too, led, led God's people in the promised land. And in leading the people, both of, these, both of these men were to reflect the character of Yahweh who leads them beside still waters. Right? But neither could fulfill God's purpose for his people. Both Moses and David were sinners. So death overtook Moses before he could get them into the promised land. And, and death overtook David as well. Nevertheless, God's people were not without hope. So consider, for example, Zechariah 9. Zechariah is one place in the Old Testament where you see these themes come together of of peace and covenant and shepherd. God would send a Savior to establish a better covenant in blood. and He would liberate his people, speak peace to the nations. He would extend his rule to the ends of the earth. Uh, Ezekiel 37 is another place. Ezekiel 37 says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant. So again, we find these themes of peace and covenant and shepherd kind of merging in this mission of a coming Savior. And then enters Jesus Christ, right? He proves to be the better mediator and king. To use the words of Hebrews, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Unlike Moses and David, death couldn't conquer Jesus. Jesus was without sin. He lived the life that we we should have lived but didn't and couldn't. And then he willingly gave himself up to death for our sake. He took our sins to the grave. The death we deserved, he died for us. The curses of that that old covenant right, that, that were intended for us, that we deserved, God poured out all those curses on Jesus instead of pouring them out on us. Jesus on the cross, took the penalty of the law we deserved. But more than that, more than that, when he spilled his blood, Jesus established the new and better covenant. Okay, notice how he phrases it. God brought again Jesus from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's another way of saying he raised Jesus on account of what Jesus did. Okay? He raised Jesus on account of the blood he shed to establish the new covenant. Here he calls it the eternal covenant. Now, there have been theologians that will, you know, you'll find it in even some of the church confessions uh, that will refer to this text here as if he's pointing backwards to, a, to, to eternity past. Uh, you know, a, a pact that was made between the persons of the Godhead. Um, and, and there is evidence in Scripture elsewhere for that. I just don't think it's here. The emphasis throughout Hebrews has been to contrast how the new covenant is better than the old covenant with Moses, okay? How the new covenant is better than that old one, that better than the law. That old covenant 
was temporary. That's what he's been talking about the whole time. The new covenant is eternal in that it lasts forever. There's not going to be another one that needs to come. All right? So he's more so talking about eternity future in this, in this, uh, in this text. There won't be another one to replace the new covenant. It's a forever covenant, and it's mediated by a forever Savior. In other words, not only does Jesus' blood forgive your sins, God also does this. Through the new covenant, God ensures that all the hopes of his peaceful kingdom will come true for you. Okay? If you take God at his word and follow Jesus, you have the assurance that God will give you all the blessings of his peaceful kingdom. That's what God achieved for you through Jesus. You don't get them for anything you've done. You get them for everything God did for you in Jesus. Forgiveness, fellowship with God, a hope that that God will raise you and give you an an immortal body like Jesus' body, absolute freedom from all sin and sinful inclinations and a new heavens and a new earth, final deliverance from all enemies, a, a creation made new, a land brightened with the radiance of God's splendor. Every tear wiped from our eyes, everlasting peace, it's all yours if you belong to Jesus. That's where he's leading us even now as our great shepherd. Jesus is a great shepherd. Amen? Listen, God appointed lesser shepherds to lead you. That's what your pastors or, or elders are your lesser shepherds under Jesus, there may be things we do sometimes that disappoint you or frustrate you. But I want to tell you, Jesus will never disappoint you. That's not an excuse for any pastor not to pursue further maturity in Christ-like leadership, but it is to say, make sure your hopes are not bound up with a mere man or some mere men. Be sure your hopes aren't bound up with some internet personality. Set your hopes on the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus will never disappoint. Even I felt the Lord's gentle correction a few weeks back. I got COVID and the fatigue and the brain fog kept me from doing my work. I wanted to care for the church. I wanted to prepare another sermon. I wanted to do all the the things that I normally do. But I I found myself very limited. And in my limitations, I grew frustrated that I couldn't do more. It's like this attitude of, doesn't the Lord know they need me? No. You don't need me. The only one you need is Jesus. I mean, all of us elders are happy to to serve under Jesus' rule, but the way we will serve you best is by pointing you to him and helping you depend on him more and not depend on us in place of him. Jesus isn't limited by earthly trials or hardships. 
He is always wise. He is always strong. He is always available. He is always near. He is always alive. Jesus is your great shepherd. So look to him. Trust in him. Even when other leaders fail or fade, Jesus is going to come through. Third question. What will God achieve in you? What will God achieve in you? We've seen kind of what he did in Christ for you. What is he going to achieve in you? This is where we move to verse 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So his prayer is that God equip them. Other translations have uh, restore them. The word has to do with putting something in a condition to function well. Putting something in a condition to function well. His prayer is that God do that in us for this specific purpose, that you may do his will. So you are functioning well when you do God's will. Another way he he puts it is... um, Later is doing that which is pleasing in his sight. You function well when you are doing God's will, when you're doing whatever is not whatever is right, not in your own eyes, whatever is right in God's eyes. What's pleasing in God's eyes. Chapters 12 to 13 taught us how to live in a manner that pleases God, right? We, we read about running the race with endurance, uh, enduring discipline patiently and, and learning what the Lord's trying to teach us through, through discipline, uh, continuing in brotherly love, showing hospitality to one another, visiting the, uh, and taking care of, of, of those who are persecuted, uh, honoring marriage, obeying your leaders, and so on, right? We, we've seen all of these things in chapters 12 to 13. And now he's asking God to restore us in such a way that we can do all those things. All right? Before we answer how that happens, I want to tease out this purpose a bit further. In Hebrews, who does God's will? Real question. Who does God's will in Hebrews? Jesus. Who does what pleases God? Jesus. Look at chapter 10, verse 5, where this same language appears. So he's in the middle of showing why Christ's sacrifice is effective and final, and he says this in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So there's that language of pleasing God, right? Okay, what will God take pleasure in? Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. Same words that we're talking about in Hebrews today. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus, 
does God's will. Jesus pleases God. Are you making the connection? By praying that God equip us to do his will, he's asking God to make us like Jesus. When God equips you to do his will, your life will look like Jesus' life. Now, how exactly does he achieve that? Well, God achieves that in you through the new covenant blessings. What was the one thing Israel needed that the law could never give them? New hearts. New desires that squared with God's desires. And that's what God gives us in the new covenant. Now, just to show you where I'm getting this, look back at chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11, he's providing this contrast between the old covenant and then what Jesus brings. And listen to what he calls him uh, in verse 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And he goes on to talk about forgiveness and things. Things that belonging to the new covenant are the good things that are to come. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, right? And then he goes on to talk about our access with God to, to, to God and assurance of faith and being sprinkled clean, all the things belonging to the new covenant. So in context, he's talking about the blessings of the new covenant in contrast to the old. The blessings of the new covenant are the good things that have come in Jesus. Okay? And then if you turn back to the new covenant, again, chapter 8, verse 10, listen to one of these good things. Chapter 8, verse 10 He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. So under the new covenant, God replaces obstinate rebellion with obedient devotion. God's law becomes so much a part of you that all that grieves God, it also grieves you. And all that pleases God also pleases you. Okay, the old covenant made demands but never could produce the obedience. The new covenant effectively produces the obedience. That's just one of the blessings. All right? The New Testament speaks elsewhere of God giving you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life and makes you a new kind of person with love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and goodness, and self-control. Another place in Hebrews speaks to how we now have this, this ongoing access to, to God, and, and He helps us in our times of need. Another place in Jeremiah speaks of God putting the fear of God in us so that we never turn away from Him again. How about that? God puts it in you so that you stay with Him. So on and on we could go with with these blessings of the new covenant. That's how God works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He pours out every good thing in the new covenant such that you can and you will do his will. 
Now, here's, here's the answer to the question we started with. In a world with persecution and deception and suffering, and knowing the weakness of your own flesh, how is staying faithful to Jesus possible? How can people like Isaac, that I mentioned earlier, and Faith, and Diego, and Hannah, and Marcus, and you, stay faithful to Jesus? Because God will do it in you. That's the answer of Scripture. It's possible because God will work it in you. Did you hear the connection? You see, you're the one doing his will. He's equipping you to do his will. Why? Because he is working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. I love the grace of the new covenant. Your faithfulness to Jesus is possible. And not just possible... But, but secured by blood. Everything the new covenant requires of you, it will also supply for you. No matter what you're facing right now or what you will face in the days to come, God is able to help you stay faithful to Jesus. So don't let your current seemingly impossible circumstances paralyze you. From following Jesus. Every grace you need for the days of head, for the days ahead, God has guaranteed them for you by Jesus' blood. I, I like the song we sang earlier. I like all of them really, but uh, these, these words that um, from afflicted saint to Christ draw near, that as your days your strength shall be. Right? Whatever you need in the days ahead, your strength is going to be there because God's going to be the one supplying it for you no matter what you're facing. See, God isn't like the pagan gods commanding you to do something and then leaving you to do it in your own strength. The true God stays with you and then graciously works to do his will in you. When you belong to Jesus, notice here that it's through Jesus, right? When you're united to Jesus by faith, you will make it to the end. God will keep you. What God will help you finish the race. So let those words encourage you and reassure your heart this morning. God is working in you what is pleasing in his sight. Make those words your, your daily prayer. God, keep working in me what is pleasing in your sight. I can't do this on my own. Help me do your will. And he will. Whatever God calls you to endure, he will give you everything good to please him. Now, if that's true, then all the glory belongs to Jesus. That's the answer to our last question. What is the goal of it all? What's the goal of it all? Verse 21 ends with this. The God of peace, working in us through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and forever and ever. Amen. That word, amen, it means truly. Let it be so. Right? Often it appears at the end of a prayer or a benediction like this one to prompt your response. Together with the author, we should be responding in our hearts and with our mouths. should be responding with this strong affirmation that God is able and that God is worthy. To render the Lord glory isn't to give him something that he lacks. It's to recognize the worth God has. 
In chapter 2, verse 9, God crowned Jesus with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And Hebrews is now telling us to affirm his glory together with him. If there's anything good in us, it's not owing to us. God did it. I mean, listen to the, the verbs. I mean, God, of all, of, all the, of all God's actions here, right? You're the one doing God's will, but consider everything that's in and behind that. God giving you his peace. God establishing a new covenant. God raising Jesus from the dead. God crowning him Lord of all. God equipping you to do his will. God working in you. Yeah, you're doing it. But God deserves the praise for all of it. Right? We get the blessings. God gets the glory. That's the goal. That's the goal of all God's saving deeds. The praise and the enjoyment of God's glory in Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Ben, you want to come pray for us?